Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, government censorship, questionable partnerships with universities and social media, and what one congressional committee is finding out about all of it. As more information about our government's involvement in unconstitutional censorship efforts has been revealed, it's raised a lot of big questions. Because nobody so far has been held accountable as we've learned some of these really disturbing things, and from what I can tell, nobody's really stepping in to stop it. Congress could pass a law setting forth what's already spelled out in the Constitution, but providing specific penalties and an enforcement structure for these constitutional censorship violations, but that's apparently not going to happen. There's so much corruption and information manipulation going on, our public servants can't even agree to do something about alleged constitutional violations. So one big question is, What if anything happens when our own government and its officials are found to have violated the Constitution? What happens if nobody's going to do anything about it? Right now, the status quo apparently means the Biden administration remains free to continue operating what many see as a censorship machine in partnership with academic institutions like Stanford University and groups funded by billionaire activists free to use the power of the government and censorship against political opponents, as they've already done and proven to do against Donald Trump, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. In any event, if you don't like Donald Trump, and maybe you don't like Kennedy either, maybe you haven't been outraged that the censorship efforts have been directed at people like that, but you should be concerned because this power of the government shouldn't be used against anybody And if left unchecked, it won't always be used just against the people you don't like. This week on Full Measure, I'm taking a look at some of what we've learned about the government censorship complex that's blossomed underneath our noses, just as the government's unconstitutional surveillance authorities have been used against American citizens, me, other journalists, political opponents to those doing the surveilling, ordinary U.S. citizens, you name it. When these things that we know have happened over the past couple of decades are left unpunished and nobody's held accountable, well, of course they continue and the unconstitutional authorities only expand. Congressman Jim Jordan heads the House Judiciary Committee and a special committee investigating weaponization of the federal government, a huge problem we've seen, especially beginning around 2016, when both Democrats and Republicans absolutely positively did not want a Trump presidency. I think the evidence shows it's because he is outside of the typical money interests that are used to calling the shots in both political parties. 
Suddenly, their power hierarchy was thrown into chaos. In any event, here's Congressman Jim Jordan and what his committees are learning. Well, ultimate goal is to draft legislation that we think um, will help us deal with how these agencies have been turned against we the people. Uh, we have, we, and we've, we've done that with, uh, we got legislation we've introduced with Senator Paul that would give citizens who've been where the government has censored them or come after them, uh, the ability to, to, you know, ramifications for the person in the government who did it and the ability to bring an action against, um, uh, those individuals who censored the American people. So it's a lot about censorship, but it's other things too. You know, we got the FBI who, uh, I was, you know, the FBI, the same FBI who, um, spied on the presidential campaign, uh, the same FBI who said pro-life Catholics are extremists. We got the Richmond memorandum and the Richmond field office memorandum that, that talks about that. That same FBI was involved in the censorship effort. Uh, we, we know that from, from our investigative work. So, um, but it's, it's, it's these various agencies, uh, that were looking to censor Americans' First Amendment rights and then other things that have happened in these agencies that, uh, where they're coming after the people that they're supposed to serve. As part of the report that you put out, I guess an interim report, <coughs> the Committee and Select Subcommittee released previously secret archive data that you obtained pursuant to a subpoena issued to Stanford University. Yep. And you said Stanford produced this only after the threat of contempt. What was in the secret information? Well, first they told us there's nothing there. Then they told us, oh, it's just a handful of students who put this project together. And we kept pushing, and finally it was the threat, threat of threat of, uh, of, uh, of contempt if they don't comply with the subpoena. We got the information, like this was an elaborate project where big government, these very various agencies in, in the federal government, working with big tech and, of course, big academia, were all involved in this effort to censor American speech. Certain posts, certain tweets that were put up, they were looking to take those down, limit their visibility, limit their reach. And they had this software system, this gyrus system they used where you could almost like a clearinghouse, like a switchboard where you could see and they could see what was going in. They could then find, are there any other similar tweets or posts? And it was this elaborate system to censor American speech. So, but initially they said, no, no, nothing to see here. And we dig into it. We find there's all kinds of things to see here. And we put this report out and all kinds of, and, and the censorship, as you would expect, was disproportionately going after conservative speech and all kinds of high profile conservatives. I mean, you may have been censored too. I thought we got a long list of, of conservatives and, and, and people in, in journalism, and everything else who were, were censored, but it was political figures. It was journalists. It was um, people with, you know, big reach online. Um, so that was the effort, but they initially said there was nothing there. So you might be referring to the election integrity partnership, yep. EIP. If I gather correctly, and you can fix this if I'm wrong, they're basically a middleman that was created by and used by the government in this massive effort to kind of surveil and censor. Yeah. Yeah. The Election Integrity Project, the IP, uh, you had um, these agencies and particularly CISA, which is supposed to be set up, but it was initially created, had kind of a, a good mission, as I guess some so often these agencies and these sub agencies have uh, to to protect uh, the hardware. And, and when we're when we're. Um, our voting systems and everything else were the people trying to hack the actual system, but it morphed into, oh, we're going to censor disinformation, misinformation, uh, as defined by the government, which is always scary. Um, but yeah, these, these various agencies, uh, were, were involved in this effort and it was called the election integrity project. And what was interesting is, so as the 2020 election is, is, is finished, 
the EIP, the Election Integrity Project, morphs into the Virality Project, which is then designed to censor any speech relative to COVID and the, and the virus that the government deemed wasn't uh, appropriate. Why were you able to find out Stanford University? What was the connection? I'm trying to, I don't even know how we initially got there. Uh, the, with, with. I'm just wondering why the agencies would turn to Stanford universities, Stanford University among other. Well, there's, there's this growing, um, I mean, I hesitate to even word, use the word, uh, you know, academic discipline, but there's this, this growing disinformation sort of industry out there. Uh, you have, um, you know, people, professors on campuses talking about they're in the, they're, they're studying disinformation, which I would tell you is fine. Like kind of it makes, it makes you a little nervous, obviously, when you're thinking about the First Amendment. But, um, I, I, so I assume that's where the government, you know, these agencies figured it out and said, well, we'll, we'll partner with Stanford, the University of Washington. We actually deposed, uh, Kate Starbird, who's, who's the, the big player with the University of Washington in this area. Um, so I'm not sure how that connection happened, but, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen at these universities that seem strange to me in, in, in ways. So maybe it was, you know, who knows. What federal agencies have been involved in these censorship efforts? Were our intel agencies part of it? Best, the best uh, list is probably from the, the decision in the Fifth Circuit in this Missouri v. Biden case where it talked about um, uh, NIAD, uh, the Health and Human Services, the FBI, the DOJ, um, Department of Homeland Security. Remember, they're the agency that tried to set up the disinformation governance board um, a year ago, and we made a big issue of that. And thank goodness that's, that's no longer there. So there were a number of these, but there, I think there's like seven or eight different agencies listed in that um, in that decision, which was a great decision. In that case, has gone to the Supreme Court, both the 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 Western District of Louisiana, the judge's decision there, and then they, uh, at the appellate court level, the, the decision there were very strong in saying our government was involved with working with big tech and censoring American speech. I think that the, the lower court said this was maybe the, the biggest, uh, biggest attack on First Amendment liberties that the court had ever seen. So, um, but they list all those agencies and it's, it's, I don't know if I got a comprehensive list that I'm going from memory, but there's a number of federal agencies involved in this effort. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Besides COVID, what were the other types of information that looked like the government was interested in censoring? It was almost all election-related um, and COVID-related. Understand on the, on, the, on the third day of the Biden administration... I find this example because I've used it in committee hearings. May use it again today. Uh, in, in the um, third day of the Biden administration, so January twenty third, twenty twenty one, it's like thirty six hours into the into the uh, new administration. There's an email from the White House. Two guys actually that that we want to talk to, um, Rob Flaherty and, and Andy uh, uh, Slavic. But there's an email from I think it's this one is from Flaherty. Uh, to Twitter saying, take down this tweet, ASAP. And then you look at the tweet. And the tweet is from 
interestingly enough, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So you step back and think about it. On the third day of this administration, they are actively trying to censor their opponent, their, their Democrat opponent for, for, for the, for, in, in the primary for President of the United States. And, uh, uh Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s, uh, the tweet, the underlying tweet was, it says, Hank Aaron passed away, uh, this week after taking the Moderna vaccine. This is a, a, a concern. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was to that effect. It was basically three sentences, and every one of the sentences was true. Hank Aaron's a real person, great American, uh, amazing athlete, done all kinds of good things for the country, great American. He had taken the vaccine as a way to encourage other people to take the vaccine, and then shortly thereafter had unfortunately had, had passed away. So he's stating fact, and the White House says, you got to take that tweet down. And this is this this is this new this term is so scary. It's it's not it's misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Malinformation is, is defined as true, but we don't like the context. We don't like the message it's conveying. Well, holy cow, if that is not a direct assault on the First Amendment, your free speech rights, I don't know what is. But the White House was engaged in that literally 36 hours into this administration, and the person they're going after is the guy they're running against in the Democrat primary. That is how bad it's gotten. It implies to me, if that was one of their first actions and concerns in office, that there's a pharmaceutical industry tie there, that that's who they're responding to or worried about. Yeah, maybe. And um, I know you're looking into this, but, um, you know, this this is uh, uh, this, you know, who knows that this, this involves uh, who in our government? I, I don't know. We have we have focused on the connection, big government, big tech and now big academia. Um, it's interesting too, though, because sort of big, um, many big, uh, uh, legacy media have also been supportive of, which I find just crazy. Like the media is supportive of a censorship effort because it won't be long until, you know, we've seen this with some of the journalists we brought in in front of our committee where, where they get attacked. Now we had Democrats, we had journalists testifying, we had Democrats in a hearing ask, repeatedly ask the journalists to divulge their sources. And I'm like, someone needs to give our Democrat colleagues a, le- uh, you know, a lecture on, on how the First Amendment works and freedom of the press. So um, we do find some of that, too, which I find really troubling that legacy media would be trying to do that. What about this behavior by the government agencies violates the Constitution? Well, I mean, you can't have, you can't have uh, the federal government saying what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. I mean, th- step back and say, think about what they tried to do last year. We learned in the Department of Homeland Security, they had set up a disinformation governance board. First of all, the title is so Orwellian, it's, it's scary in and of itself. But you had a government agency that was, their job was to say what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say, what is truth, what isn't truth. That's frightening. And then you, you step back further and say, take, take the, um, take COVID as an example. Think how how many things the government told us. If they're supposed to be the arbiter of truth, think how many things they told us relative to COVID that were false. I mean, there's a, there's there's tons. They told us that it wasn't our tax money used in the in the uh, lab in Wuhan, China. Yes, it was. They told us it wasn't gain of function. Sure, looks like it was. They told us it didn't come from a lab. Sure, looks like it did. They told us the vaccinated couldn't get it. They told us the vaccinated couldn't transmit it. They told us masks work. I mean, and I'm probably forgetting, but there's Six lies right there. So, and yet they're the ones who are going to decide. And thank goodness the American people said, like, this is ridiculous. And they've disbanded that. So one of the things I do feel good about our work in the committee is you've seen 
we've seen change. You've seen the disinformation government support is going. Here's another great example. When we had two journalists testifying who were part of the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi's testifying. Democrats are asking him to divulge his sources. While that's going on, literally at that moment, the IRS was knocking on Matt Taibbi's door. And there's not one person, one group of people I've told that story to who think that was just, a, well, Shazam, that just was an accident. That everyone thinks that was intimidation. And now, the good news is, the IRS announced a few months ago they will no longer be making unannounced visits to American people's homes. <laughs> and the commissioner said, well, uh, we're, we're, we're doing this because we're concerned about the security of our agents. Baloney. They're doing it because we caught them, right? And, and but for our work, I don't know that that policy change happened. So those are some of the positive things that are happening. So this behavior has been flagged pretty clearly by the court, as you've said, as unconstitutional. But nothing so far has really happened because of it. So I, th- I think what's confusing to me and maybe to some Americans, does that mean it's illegal behavior? And if it's unconstitutional, but the people responsible for doing it would be the ones responsible for any punishment, how do you get any justice for that? Well, it's, you know, I, I mentioned we've, Senator Paul and I, we've, we've introduced legislation that we think is, is you know, because our job as legislators is to, is there a legislative remedy for sh- certain concerns out there? Um We'll see what the Supreme Court says. I feel good about our chances of getting a good decision from the court um, upholding, you know, First Amendment liberties. Um, and then third, it's it's interesting. There have been a number of stories here in the past several months, maybe past three or four months, um, that say, oh, the, the the headline will be something like uh, the, the disinformation industry is threatened by the work of our committee. Uh, they're, they're concerned because they're having to hire lawyers to come in for the depositions when we're doing, when we're gathering the facts and, and putting these reports together. Um, and, and it's, uh, it, one of them said, uh, uh, Congress is bullying the, uh, attempting to bully the, the disinformation, uh, uh, industry out there. And I'm like, so the people who were bullying citizens censoring Americans are now saying they're the victims because we're trying to get the truth out. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I do feel like we're having an impact and, uh, let's, uh, our, 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 you know, if, if, if there's less of this quote disinformation industry out there censoring Americans, I think that's a good thing. These stories are written as if that's somehow going to be bad. So I feel like we are making some progress, um, in, in stopping this and again, upholding and reinforcing the first amendment. When the government announced it was disbanding the disinformation governance board, <coughs> I think a lot of people thought maybe in name they're not having a formal board, but most people believe they're still doing the same types of things. What do you think? Um, you, you always, you know, uh, as, as citizens of the greatest country ever, you always want to be, you know, focused on protecting liberty and, and skeptical of what your government may be doing in, in some of these areas. So, um, yeah, I, I still have some concerns and it's why we're, we're doing our work, but I do think that was a victory <clears throat> that there's no, I mean, did I get what there was going to be a formal board? Just, I think it's crazy, but, uh, and that they attempted to do it. Um, so yeah, we, we, we gotta be, you know, cognizant that that still might be happening just in a different name and different without actually maybe a formal name and formal organization. Um, so we'll keep doing our oversight. That's our constitutional duty to do so. So that leads to my next question. As we get deep into the 2024 campaign, is there anything your committee or Congress can do to 
sort of monitor along the way and make sure that while you're looking at this issue, it's not happening with with this coming election? Yeah, uh, great question. I do think just the fact that we have been and continue to examine this area is helpful in and of itself. Um, and we, and because we're doing that, I think we're going to be more attuned to what may crop up where they're trying to, um, do things similar to what they did in, 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 in 2020. Um, maybe the best example that, that came up that I think did have a big impact on the election was, um, the term we've used is sort of the pre-bunking of the whole, uh, laptop story. Cause the FBI had the laptop for a year. And there were repeat, and this came out in, in the litigation, Missouri v. Biden case. In the run up to the, to the election, they, this was a sworn declaration from Yoel Roth where he talks about that each month, uh, the government, particularly the FBI was in, in these regular meetings was telling the tech industry, we expect a hack and leak operation to happen in October before the election and likely involve Hunter Biden. And you step back and go, well, these guys, what are they like profits? I mean, how did they know? Well, they knew because they had the laptop and they, and they knew the laptop was real. And so they're sort of setting this all up. And then Shazam, here comes a story, October 14th, New York Post. And it's boom, boom, boom. It's in October. It's about Hunter Biden. It's, a, it's, and they even asked the question. We found this out in our state. They even asked the question, is this laptop real? And the first answer from the FBI was yes. And then they said, well, no, no comment. And then they were asked again by another tech company and they said, no comment. They got their story straight and said, we're going to talk about it, even though they knew it was real. And because of all that, that story was censored. That story was not allowed to get to the American people in the way it should have. And because they didn't speak up, the government didn't speak up about something they knew. We got the, the now famous letter from the 51 former Intel official saying it's a, it's a Russian information operation when it wasn't. It was a, all true. So uh, I do think that had an impact on the election because it was all designed. We found this out in our investigation too. It was all designed so Joe Biden could use it in the final debate. Mike Morrell told us that when we had him in this room at that table during a deposition. My last question about this is we've been hearing about some really shocking constitutional violations by our government and intel agencies in terms of surveillance, monitoring, and censorship for more than two decades. And it seems as though we're now arguing fine points rather than we've lost the outrage over the fact that any bit of it happens at all. Yeah. Um, maybe not you or your committee, but in general, the American public seems to almost expect that this is something the government does. Maybe they don't like it, but this is how it works. Yeah, that's scary. Um, it's it's why we have been this Congress and we're at the point now where it's 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 a critical moment because there is a certain section of the FISA law which has to be uh, reauthorized. Uh, reauthorization is, is the end of this calendar year. And um, we have on the committee have focused on laying the groundwork so that we get the right kind of reforms to that, that we think better protect Americans' liberties. And uh, when, when they query this database of it, when the FBI queries this database of information, um, it's one thing to spy on foreigners. We want our government to do that because this part of protecting, protecting our country, protecting the American people. It's a much different thing when you're querying a database where you've gathered information and you're querying Cheryl Atkinson's email address or Cheryl Atkinson's phone number, and, and you know it's a, an American citizen, you know it's a human being's number and phone and, and or email address, that's a different animal. And so we think there should be safeguards in place, and we are working on that issue as we speak. 
Let me tell you what both Democrats and Republicans have told me over the years, and you can correct me if, if my interpretation's wrong. But for years, people on both sides have told me that they intend to do some good reforms or demand some reforms before they reauthorize the ability of our intelligence agencies to do certain things. And then they say before the vote, they get called in by their party leaders and told you're voting for it without the reforms. And they do. And this keeps happening. So, you know, we always hear, oh, maybe this time. Yeah. And then the FBI gets a brand new building. Almost it looks like a reward for all the bad behavior. Not yeah. that all the agents are bad or all the officials are bad, but no, it looks like this was a chance to hold, to have some accountability for some things. And yet it looks like nothing was done. No, I, I, I agree. That's the pattern. That's been the pattern. I do think now uh, we have a real chance uh, because I think it's a little different now. Um, we had an FBI that spied on a presidential campaign. Never happened in American history. We have an FBI that had to rescind the the what the, the memorandum, the domain perspective is the term they use, from the Richmond field office. They initially told us it was limited to Richmond, but we now know it wasn't. There were a couple other field offices involved in in this this. Uh, labeling pro-life Catholics as extremists. Um, we know that the FBI was involved in the censorship effort. We know what I just described, what happened. To t- so the context and the framework, I think, are now so, so different. Like, wow, we know all this and we know it as fact. Um, if we don't get the reforms in, um, then we've really, I think, let down the American people. Sunday, January 7th, you can watch my full measure cover story exploring this topic in some depth. To find a TV station and time near you, go to CherylAckison.com and click the full measure tab. There will be a list of stations and times or just go to fullmeasure.news on Sunday around 9.31, 9.32 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch live or replays at fullmeasure.news anytime. As far as a response to the things said in this story and by Congressman Jim Jordan, we reached out to Stanford University. They did not respond to our questions or have any comment. We also reached out to the White House. They referred us to the National Security Council. They referred us to an agency implicated or involved in all of this, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. This is an agency stood up according to descriptions I was given, stood up to watch out for alleged foreign interference in our elections and to protect our infrastructure. But it's kind of morphed, according to its critics, into something that uses taxpayer money to, under the auspices of supposed foreign threats, censor domestic messages or political enemies of whoever's doing the censoring. Now, they say that's not so. A statement from them says, CISA, I don't know if they call themselves CISA or CISA, but this Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says that it does not and has never censored any speech. Every day, I'm quoting here, the men and women of CISA execute the agency's mission of reducing risk to the critical infrastructure Americans rely on in a way that protects Americans' freedom of speech, civil rights, civil liberties, and privacy. The statement goes on to say, with respect to foreign influence operations and disinformation that may impact the integrity of election infrastructure, in response to concerns expressed by election officials of all parties, we are focused on mitigating the risk of disinformation 
by sharing accurate information, and by amplifying the trusted voices of election officials across the nation. Pausing here from the statement, I'm sorry, I know this is supposed to sound like a good function, but to have a government agency tell us that it's stepping in to amplify trusted voices of election officials and decide what is disinformation when we know the government's been wrong about that in many instances, it just sounds a lot like North Korean propaganda. But continuing from their statement, they say, we remain committed to building resilience to foreign influence operations and disinformation so the American people don't face the brunt of these threats on their own. The Election Integrity Partnership is a private partnership formed in 2020 that included the Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington, Graphica, and the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. CISA did not found, fund, or have any role in the management of the Election Integrity Partnership. A couple of other things worth pointing out, I think. This statement mentioned a partner in this collaboration, the controversial collaboration we have been discussing today, the Election Integrity Partnership. With so many of these information control or information manipulation efforts, I find many of the same familiar names behind the funding besides the government. So the Atlantic Council was mentioned as a partner. That group is funded by the State Department, the Defense Department, other federal agencies, foreign governments, particularly governments in the Mideast, but also other governments, also, Mideast and U.S. oil interests fund the Atlantic Council. Financial giants like Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, J.P. Morgan Chase, Google and Twitter, and also the same familiar names, Foundations for Billionaire Activist George Soros, Craig Newmark of Craigslist, and a Ukrainian oligarch named Viktor Pinchuk. These are all names and voices in the background of a lot of efforts that end up curating or censoring our information or controlling the narrative or pushing out certain viewpoints and suppressing others. And the notion that the government pretty much invited itself into the role of looking at our information and amplifying certain people and disamplifying others, the notion that that was something the government should do was stoked by the idea that foreigners are attempting to undermine our elections. And while that's undoubtedly the case to some degree, the idea that it's played a big role of any kind and that the government has been able to or needs to step in in this way to stop it is probably somewhat exaggerated because for all the talk, for example, of Russia interfering in the 2016 election, a study by the New York University Center for Social Media and Politics and other analyses concluded that the so-called Russia misinformation in 2016 had, quote, no measurable impact. You can look up one citation or source of that by searching online for a Washington Post article dated January 9th, 2023 by Tim Starks. The title was Russian Trolls on Twitter Had Little Influence on 2016 Voters. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if you did, you will share it with your friends and leave a great review and check out my other podcast, The Cheryl Ackeson Podcast, more on this very topic with Adupam Chander, a law professor at Georgetown. He's taught internet law for a long time there and has some interesting reflections. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. <laughs>